Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is an Australian martial artist, stuntman, and actor. After high school, he worked as a bodyguard in the entertainment industry before pursuing an acting career. His first on-screen appearance was in the 1980 Chuck Norris film The Octagon, and he's worked on over 80 feature films and television shows. He's appeared in numerous martial arts films, facing off against action stars such as Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Benny the Jet Urquidez, Don the Dragon Wilson, Cynthia Rothrock, and so many more. In 1992, he became the fight coordinator on Walker, Texas Ranger. He currently holds a 10th degree black belt in Zendokai, the hybrid martial art that he co-created. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Richard Norton. How are you doing today, sir? Good. Thank you, Brian. Good to be with you, my friend. Again, I don't want to be with you because you just told me it's way below freezing and uh, we've got <laughs> summer here in Australia. So I just had to add that little bit in. I'm jealous. I'm very, very jealous. So. <laughs> cool. Well, how we kind of like to start things, I just want to know what led to that first spark, that first interest in martial arts that made you walk through that first you know, dojo door and, and uh, start your martial arts journey. Yes, I get that asked of me a lot, you know, and I, I like to preface it by saying I know so many people have stories of being in rough neighborhoods and getting beaten up by neighborhood gangs and everything, and that's what led them to want to learn self-defense. But that wasn't the case with me. I grew up in Croydon, which is a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. And it was pretty much what we in Australia would call the bush, you know. It is just a lot of... A lot of land, a lot of trees, all of that sort of stuff. No real city life aspect to it. And so I was always, you know, running about, you know, with a couple of friends next door. We'd run around and maybe box a little bit and carry on like all kids do. And uh, a kid moved into a house opposite to where I lived in Croydon. And we became friends. And a couple of weeks into our friendship, he was disappearing twice two nights a week because we would like to go and play snooker or pool or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had to ask where he was going and he was going to a judo class and that was uh, run by a, a local police officer. And I was just immediately intrigued. And, and I guess in my intrigue, and I've said this a lot, but I'll say it again, it was literally the only introduction or, or only um, – way I had to know about judo was on the back of comic books. There were ads on the back of these comic books about judo. It seemed incredibly mystical, uh, you know, because the ads were always how you could, you know, defeat five mm-hmm. people with a finger, which once you start judo as an 11-year-old, you find that's not quite true. But anyway, <laughs> I was just really uh, – I was honestly attracted by the whole mystical lure of the martial arts as a result of that. And I went along and studied judo. Again, I was very small, very, very frail as an 11-year-old. I used to get asthma as a kid. So I was a bit like cannon fodder for the older teenage 
judo players or judoka. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a few years later when I was in my mid-teens that uh, two high school friends told me about a karate school uh, or rather a karate demonstration that was going to be conducted a few miles from where I lived. And I went, wow, let's go along. We need to see that. And that was really the start of my martial arts journey because I, it was a gentleman named Tino Severano who had been out in Australia only about six months from Hawaii. He was Hawaiian-Filipino. And he taught a style of karate called goju. Ah. And I saw this very fundamental demonstration and I was just blown away. And I, I absolutely remember saying in my own little head then, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I want to do. And again, it wasn't for reasons of wanting to be tough or beat people up or anything like that. I was just mm-hmm. again intrigued by what I even recognized then as the art of what I was looking at and what was being demonstrated. And I tell you, it's the best best decision I ever made because, you know, I, that was, uh, well, 1961, I started judo, 65, 66 karate and the journey continues so it's over 60 years and the journey continues and and uh, I can't even imagine what my life would have been had I not walked in and been a part or at least witnessed that demonstrative karate and taken the guts to go you know what I need to get on the floor and 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 start this journey well, it's actually kind of funny you said that about the judo instructor because my first style was tung sudo when I was 10, and it was actually taught by a local police officer also. So <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah, it, it just happened that way with the judo. He was lovely. You know, I often say to people, you don't know whether your instructor's good or bad mm-hmm. when you've got something like that because you don't know anything, you know, and it's only years later you will either realize you've wasted a lot of time and money or you've had an amazing experience. And and thankfully I can say John Burgey's name was, he was, he was very attentive. He was very caring, you know, for us as kids, uh, which I now appreciate so much more than maybe I even did then. And the same with Tino Severano. He was just, he was so passionate as an instructor and as a sensei and as a teacher. And, you know, I'd have luau's at his house, you know, we'd invite students around and we, and we, we almost trained just because we wanted to be good martial artists, not for any commercial reasons or mm. any ulterior motives. And looking back again, I have such an appreciation for people like this, John Burge and Tina Sembrano, you know, as, as a start to my journey. Wow. So at, at any time back then, did you get involved in the competition side of martial arts? Yes, I did. But, you know, when I started karate, there was you were lucky to have one tournament a year. Wow. You know, because in Australia we had judo. I was I didn't compete in judo. I did get to, I believe, brown belt, but a junior brown and judo, mm-hmm. which is just enough to sort of hurt yourself with. But <laughs> <laughs> when when I started karate, you know, because it was so new, Tino, Tino Sabarano is considered the father of Australian karate. Yes, there were a few karate clubs around, but I didn't know about them, and I believe the majority of the population didn't either. They were quite obscure. It was Tino that really put karate on the map. And as a result, as I said, of this newness in the country, tournaments were few and far between. I did compete in the first ever Australian Karate Championships. I remember coming fourth. No weight divisions, of course. You know, there's no protective equipments. Yes, it was supposed to be controlled, but far from. 
but an amazing experience, you know. So I that's that was really I competed in some karate championships. Later on, you know, when I started jiu-jitsu, I went to Hawaii and won a gold medal as a purple belt in the Pan Ams there. But I got to say, I'm not, it's not my focus. It never has been with my martial arts that I need to compete mm-hmm. because I was as much interested in the reality-based aspect of the art as opposed to the sport aspect. And anyone who knows about karate particularly, it's very, you know, when the Okina, when it moved or transgressed across from Okinawa to Japan, the Japanese were more interested in character development. You know, for for university students, kids, it was about it was about sort of an involvement of of improving your quality of life, the way you behave, your respect, all of that sort of stuff. And as a result, they brought in what's called kumite or jukumite and you know, they would compete with on a points basis, which didn't really have a lot to do with the reality-based aspect of the Okinawan karate that was more concerned with self-defense in the street, civil compliance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, there was quite a difference. So, and that interests me as much as anything is, well, what are the reality aspects of this art, you know? So I, again, I think competition is amazing because it's such a – I remember competing when I competed at the Pan Ams. What really – the biggest lesson I got from that was the journey towards stepping onto that mat. The weeks before where you go through all the ins and outs, gee, what if I lose, what if I get finished in 10 seconds, whatever it is, your ego is very much put on the line. You know, what will my friends think of me if I don't do well, et cetera, et cetera, and – it's that journey leading to the actual match that is the real lesson because I believe that's that's the hardest thing for people to do is is actually dare to participate. Mm-hmm. We back, we armchair expert, what we would do, how we would do things, but there's not a lot will actually get up and get on that mat and put themselves on the line. So I absolutely respect the journey of the competitor because it's, Especially today, I mean, the the level of competition is just ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And and I'll give you an example, which what impressed me, for instance, Tom Hardy. Mm, yes. I don't know what you've seen, but Tom recently, you know, I was one of the first to actually give him some jujitsu lessons when we were getting ready for Fury Road, Mad Max movie that was shot in 2013. We had quite a bit of prep time, and every day I was uh, Tom was wanting me to train him in jujitsu. He's ended up now in a Hodge Gracie uh, affiliate school. And as you saw, just lately he competed in as a blue belt in uh, gi and no-gi competition, won gold medal in both divisions. This was in the UK. I remember thinking, God, hats off to you, Tom. Yeah. I mean, that takes guts because he's a celebrity. He's, mm-hmm. he's Mad Max, for instance. You would understand if he perceived himself as supposedly he's a tough guy just because of the persona on screen. Yep. So to go out there and get on the mat and dare to sort of participate and maybe not win, I thought that said a lot about him and his character. So, you know, as I said, it's, it's not an easy thing to do for a celebrity, but just as difficult for somebody, just Joe Blow, who's feeling... They're trying to sort of find their, their ground, as it were, you know, and, and sort of validate themselves. It's it's not easy. So I, I it's a long-winded way of saying yes. If any students out there feel like competing, 
it's a great journey and it's a great character builder and it will tell you a lot about yourself. I wish I would have talked to someone like you because I've only done one tournament in my life. And the only reason I did it, I, at the time, I had no interest in competition, but my instructor forced me to. And it, it's not an instructor I'm with anymore you know, for many reasons. But you know, and because I was forced to, I think I just hated it. And I did not do well. And, and I think if I would have had a better experience that first time, who knows? I might have, because I, I love training other people for competition. And who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe someday I'll, I'll decide to get back out there and that stuff. I think you've, you know what you're saying, brother. You've got to do it for you. Yep. Like, you know, I trained with Jean-Jacques Machado for, what, 30 years in jiu-jitsu. And he would never, ever make people feel they had to compete. He was totally supportive because mm-hmm. he was a competitor himself. And I love that he, he used to say, if he said, if I go and compete and win, he said, all of you have won. You, you all should celebrate because without you as my students pushing me, sparring with me, you know, helping me find my weak points, then I couldn't be that champion. So he said, in a sense, you're all part of that particular trophy win. And I like that, you know, without that pressure. And there's a lot that did compete and did incredibly well. And there was, again, there was just a lot that felt that just wasn't what they wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. that was fine too. And I think that's a healthy environment, you know, for a martial arts school. Oh, I agree completely. At what level, at what belt did teaching become something that interested you? Well, that just happened as a natural consequence of training. I started teaching karate when I was still a green belt. Because, you know, where back in the 60s, it was a rented church hall. You know, you would go twice a week and there was other dojos around that were sort of part-time. Tino would come out most nights and everything else, but there were obviously times when he couldn't. So it was left to the original students, of which I was one, to then teach, you know, the the lower belts. And it was just a natural progression for my training. And, and boy, there is nothing better for... Again, you finding out what you know and don't know about your art than when you start to teach because you now have to explain the technique. You'll get questions. They'll want to know this, that. What are the variables? What are the negatives? What are the positives? And when you start to actually teach something that you believe to know well, you will you will absolutely find out what you don't know. You know, I used to, used to get questioned a lot, and luckily I had the common sense to say, look, you know what, I don't have an answer to that, but I will have an answer for you when we next uh, get on the mat. Nice. So it sort of gave me the impetus to just do more introspection, to research more, and to be able to answer all those variables on a particular technique or whatever it is I might be teaching. And I think it's just a fantastic way to learn. Yeah, I agree. That's I, I know when I started teaching, I, I started learning my own stuff way better than I had before. So it kind of makes you look at it from a different angle. So Totally. And then also it's about confidence too. You know, there's, there's an old saying, teach something that you learned yesterday as though you've known it for 20 years. Oh. <laughs> In other words, you nice. have to teach with confidence. But you also, though, this, you know, what I realized when I really started teaching is I realized there was an incredible obligation on me to be imparting the best knowledge possible. Mm-hmm. And it's an old saying, you don't know what you don't know, but at least what you believe you know and what you believe to be the best possible expression of your art, you're obligated to teach that because that student is there to learn. They walk out of there with that information, that knowledge you've just given them, and one would hope 
it's as correct as it could be, if that makes sense, you know. Yeah, and definitely, a lot of there's a lot of crappy teachers out there, and the disturbing part is they don't even know that they're not that good. Well, you think about them teaching somebody, and then that student teaching somebody else. You know, it becomes a watered down system after a while. So, the onus is on an instructor to really understand the importance of how they teach, what they teach, the quality of what they teach, also when to use what they teach. There's just so much that goes with it, you know, especially if you're teaching younger students. You know, you you have third-party responsibility. If you teach somebody to smack somebody in the throat, then you better also explain when something as violent like that would be justified, you know, Uh, and it's all commensurate with the level of violence that you're facing. But there's a lot of that that doesn't get discussed in schools and instructors don't understand. And, And I believe we have an obligation in today's world that you're teaching very warlike techniques in a sense. You're teaching joint kicks, kicks to the groin, whatever it is, choking people unconscious. So along with that comes a responsibility for the use of those skills. And this is where, you know, as an instructor, you need to understand that the art side of martial arts, because there's a lot of martial being taught, but there's not a lot of balancing art being taught. In other words, if you look at the samurai and everything, and, you know, they were walking around with swords, they were protectors, they were whatever, but I believe they were very well versed in the arts. In other words, Chanayu, the tea ceremony, or... Ikebana, you know, flower arranging or Mm. poetry, you know. This was part of being a samurai. So I sort of look at that as a total balance to the martial side. In other words, the use of the sword with what they do. It was very balancing. And I believe with martial arts today, that's also important. That's why when you go into good school, you bow. I mean, we don't bow as Westerners. We shake hands and everything. But that to me is an indication that your personality will allow you to bow and just be humble in front of another person who is allowing you to train with them, whether you're the teacher or the student, and allowing you to progress and get better in your art. And I think that's what also needs to be emphasized, you know, with especially with the younger kids. You know, so if a kid looks at me and thinks, oh, man, he's a bodyguard, he's a tough fighter, and he's an eight-year-old and he's looking up to me and he sees me actually bow to another adult or to anyone else or to the dojo as they enter or to the training area, I believe that automatically gives him license also to be humble and to show a bit of respect. You know, it's not about just being the tough guy, you know, so. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Think back to when you first taught as a green belt to now. You still do like seminars and stuff and you've done training videos. What do you think has changed the most about your teaching style over those years? Oh, goodness me, a lot. You know, I think, I think I've think i been smart enough to really look at what I consider good teachers. You know, there's a thing about um, when I became an actor, my acting teacher once said, when you look at, say, a scene in the movie and you, you really like it, oh, God, wasn't that a great scene, whatever it might be. She said to me, instead of just going, wow, that's great, moving on, ask yourself, well, why do you feel it's great? What do you see in that scene that really separated from other scenes or whatever well that also used to apply for teaching I would I would do a class and if I felt man that was a fantastic class I would then ask well what was so fantastic about it what separated that class and that instructor from another instructor 
who's teaching similar kind of techniques. And that was very instructive to me. You know, it's, it's how you impart knowledge to a student. And also, I guess one of the biggest things I learned when I got more advanced is remembering what the beginner's mind was like. Because mm-hmm. the problem when we get the black belt and everything, we've hopefully got a reasonably advanced level of knowledge in what we're teaching. The trick, though, when you get a white belt is to realize they have no concept of of what any sort of an advanced technique would be about, like a kata or anything else, arcs right. of tension, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the the biggest thing I learned was going back and trying to understand what the empty mind would be like and how how would I start them on the journey the same way as I was started on my journey with fundamental explanation, giving them a, a what I call a, a perfect mental blueprint of what they're trying to to learn and taking it in baby steps, not expecting ridiculous advancement from again the beginner mind and I'm talking about whether it's an eight-year-old or a 50-year-old when you first start in the arts it's a very confusing and vast sort of thing that you're trying to learn so I think I think that's the biggest difference for me is still reminding myself of what I was like when I first started and even as a brain belt I'm a total novice you know and and aside from that the biggest difference for me is that's the same is that I believe I'm still the same green belt in the sense that I'm still a student. I'm still very well aware that at my age, I'm 73 in January, that as as a green belt at 16 or 70 years of age, that I still have that student mind. I'm still hungry. I'm still eager to upgrade my knowledge base, you know, with with Mm -hmm. what we're doing now. Martial arts has changed. Martial arts has always been a product in the environment. As you know, it's a mixed martial arts environment now. But just being aware of all of that and just keeping up to date with those people that are researching and and advancing their own particular arts and working out, well, how is I, as a student of the art, how can I be a little bit better tomorrow? Because, you know, I've often said I don't want to be the same martial artist I was a year ago or five years ago. That's boring. You know, how can I... How can I just interpret my art a little bit differently? And that absolutely involves having the beginner mind, you know? Wow. That's a great answer. I love that a lot. What led to the decision for you to become a bodyguard? Is that something that you went looking for or did someone just, you know, see you, you know, in competing or something or see you in martial arts and say, Hey, do you want to do this? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, it started when I trained in Goju, Goju Kai under Tina Sebrano. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was another gentleman, Bob Jones, who uh, started, I think, believe a year later than me. Bob was 10 years older than I was. And Bob already ran a big security company in Melbourne. He would do security for the pubs. I always laugh when I say discos because that really dates me, but they were discos. (laughs) And uh, discos, clubs, bars and everything. So he had security team. We got to be very good friends. And when Bob wanted to start his own eclectic system that you'd mentioned, Zendokai, Uh wanted me to go with him, hence me being a kind of a co-creator, co-founder of Zendokai. And as a result of Bob, I started working doors at some local clubs here in Melbourne. So that was, uh, you know, uh, feet to the fire, as it were, you know, working on doors, you learned a lot about reality based as, as opposed to sport in, when it comes to your martial arts. But right. 
And then I believe it was 1972, 73, there was an entrepreneur named Paul Dainty who used to bring all the top bands out to Australia. And Paul rang Bob and asked if we would be interested in looking after the Rolling Stones on their tour of Australia and New Zealand. Bob, of course, said yes. So Bob and I ended up being uh, personal bodyguards for the Stones. And that's what started my body. So it was a result of just teaching full-time for Bob okay. in Zendikai, him already being in security, me working doors, you know, at clubs and everything, and then progressed into working with the Stones. That then led to Paul Dainty wanting us to look after most of the bands that he brought out, like Fleetwood Mac, Joe Cocker, James Taylor, David Bowie, ABBA. You know, I work with a multitude of bands as a result of of that first start with Paul Dainty. And a lot of the work, by the way, you say, or did somebody ask you, you, there's a lot of people who will have resumes and everything else and try to get jobs in that sort of area, as in rock and roll bands. Yep. But it really comes from word of mouth. I got most of my bodyguard work through band members or whatever recommending me to then others in their fields because they, you know, it's a, it's a different animal when you're working with say the stones or fleetwood or a david bowie they're very private and there's a lot of trust needed and the fact that i would say work with mick jagger is already a a very very powerful calling card for me to work with other bands because as well if if he thought richard was okay then that says a lot if that makes sense and and the final reason i got a lot of work and bob of course is we never looked like bodyguards per se. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, we were <laughs> quite fashionable. Not now. If you saw some of the pictures of what I wore back then, you'd wonder. <laughs> but even my wife said, oh, my God, you look like that. And I said it was very <laughs> fashionable back then. Yeah, but we, we could look like a member of the band. You know, we mm-hmm. could go to parties, clubs or whatever, and it wasn't the very heavy overtone of a big dude with his arms folded. But they understood that should the shit hit the fan that there was somebody there ready to take care of it. That's awesome. So is that what led you to Hollywood because of those connections or, or how did that end up happening? No, Hollywood came, uh, well, it's actually both. And I'll, yeah. I'll explain why, like when I was training with Bob, Bob went over to America in 78, ended up meeting different martial artists and one of them was Chuck Norris and invited Chuck out to Australia to do some demonstrations and so Chuck came out in 78 he'd just done uh, Good Guys Wear Black and Breaker Breaker some of his very early action movies so he was able to sort of promote them but but he came out you know in order to sort of be a, a star because everybody in Australia even back then knew of Chuck Norris with the competition circuit that was happening in the US mm-hmm. And uh, so Chuck ended up doing demonstrations. I had dem- was demonstrating Sai and Bo, Okinawan weapons and Carter on the same card. And we went to different states in Australia. And this was at the first ever kickboxing tournaments held in Australia. Bob was the first to ever sort of hold kickboxing matches here. Okay. And as a re- Chuck and I just got on very, very well. And uh, he happened to say to me, look, Rich, if you ever get to California, make sure you give me a call and we'll do some training. I thought that's probably not on the cards just because I was very settled here in, in Australia. Anyway, I happened to be touring with Linda Ronstadt in 1978. And for the young ones who don't know Linda, (laughs) 
Linda was as big as Beyonce in her day. She yep. won 10 Grammys, sang rock, rock and roll, country and western, on, on it goes. So I toured with Linda in Australia and New Zealand. She then ended up asking me if I would work for her full-time in the U.S. Wow. And I was like, oh, man, that's a big ask, you know, because I was very settled here with clubs, with everything else, you know. And I remember uh, we, we had a few phone calls and Linda was the one that ended up out of the blue. She said, look, why don't you just try it? You can always go back home. And that was the impetus that made me go, you know what? She's right. If I don't sort of dare to step out of my comfort zone and what I do here and sort of embrace this brave new world overseas, then then really what life is what is life about? So I went over to California and that by the way, that's a whole other story, as I say again with martial arts. If I hadn't made that if I hadn't had the guts to step out of my little comfort zone here of teaching in my clubs and work and girlfriend again i cannot imagine what my life would have been because it just changed everything i got to california the first person i called was chuck norris he invited me around to the house he used to live in a place called rolling hills estates just out past the airport so i just started training with chuck six days a week every morning we would do three hour intensive workouts that would kill an ox I was also, of course, working with Linda, with James Taylor, and started working with Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks. But that was with tours, you know. So mm-hmm. when they went out on tours is when I would go out with them. So I, I had a lot of time to actually spend on the mat. Now, when I was training with Chuck, he was in pre-production for the movie you mentioned earlier in your intro, and that was The Octagon. Yep. He realized because of my demonstrations in Melbourne that I could handle Okinawan weapons and everything, and there was a part for this main sort of bad guy in it, as it were, Keo, who technically was supposed to be Asian, hence the mask that I ended up wearing, and I darkened my eyes out. But he he wanted me to be his main nemesis, and I thought, great, why not? We we rehearsed a lot of those fights in the back of uh, – backyard of Chuck's house for months. I've even got old footage of some of those rehearsals. Wow. And, you know, I worked on and, – and I'm, I, so I find myself on the set of The Octagon. Not only am I on the set sort of acting and, and helping put the fights together, but I am also realize I'm working alongside some of the most amazing martial artists in Simon and Philip Ree, who have become icons in the industry with yep. their – stunt coordinating, and they're amazing uh, martial artists in their own right. Tadashi Yamashita was my boss in Octagon. Wow. And I remember getting on the set and saying, oh, Sensei, you know, what What do you do? What is your style? And got me to throw a couple of punches. He blitzed me with shit that I'd never seen before, and I was <laughs> like, oh, my God. Ended up training, you know, under the, uh, Yamashita Sensei for a couple of years and learning a lot of his stuff. So my point being that I'm on the set and I'm like, this is unbelievable. I'm a martial artist. I'm actually getting paid. I'm working with other martial artists, you know. And I thought, how good is this? And that started my whole movie career. So it wasn't something I aspired to do. Mm-hmm. It just happened, you know, through my relationship with Chuck, him understanding my abilities and the way we went. And that led to Walk Attention Stranger and, like you said, 80-plus movies. And, uh, you know, I always like to say to people, especially young kids, you know, when it comes to the arts, everything good in my life, you know, bodyguard work for 25 years traveling the world with some of the most amazing bands in the era. 
80 plus movies with Jackie Chan, Chuck Norris, etc. It all came as a result of me just wanting to be the best martial artist I could be. In other words, my passion for that resulted in incredible opportunities, not just for making a living, but for experiencing life in a way that most people wouldn't get to experience. So again, you know, what an incredible journey it's been and it's still going. That's awesome. You must like playing the bad guy. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> You say that like you think I have a choice, <laughs> meaning that you, you you often get offered roles as as what they see you best fitted for. When you work with a Chuck Norris or a Jackie Chan or whatever, of course, they're the heroes. They're the lead, so you are ultimately going to play the bad guy. They want somebody formidable to fight in the end. We always used to laugh. The problem with playing the bad guy is you never get the lead lady and you always get beaten up in the end or you die. Playing the good but but you can also do anything with your character because basically your job is to be not so well liked in that everybody's got to want to see you get your come up in the end. Playing the good guy means you've got to be very careful. You've got to be liked. You've got to be all, you know, picture perfect and everything else. Having said that, I, I have played a lot of good guy roles. You right. know, I did the Legion on a one and two with Cynthia, China O'Brien movie, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it really, it didn't matter for me. You know, it was fun just being on a movie set and uh, whether it's a good guy or bad guy, providing the character was was fun to play, then off we went. Nice. Yeah, you got to work with a, a few of my previous guests because Cynthia's been on the show. Uh, Simon Ree's been on the show. All of those people have been amazing in their own yeah. way, you know, because mm -hmm. that's the beauty of it. Like, you know, Simon and Philip Ree, they, they were in Korean martial arts, you know. Yep. I'm not sure it was Taekwondo or Tungsudo, yep. but you Taekwondo, know what I mean. Yep. yep. And uh, Tadashi Yamashita was a Shurinru martial artist, you know, and developed his own style. There was incredible variety. So the fact that I got a chance to be on the mat with so many different stylists was so informative and important for my development as a martial artist. Because when I started back in the day, it was very much if you did Shotokan, that's all you did, or you did Goju, or you yep. did Judo, or you boxed. You, you didn't cross-train so much. As you know, later on, you know, with a, when the UFC started, cross-training became the thing. You added grappling into your stand-up art or whatever. Well, even way back, training with people like Joe Lewis and Bill Wallace and, you know, the people you've mentioned, Fumio Demura, who was a yes. wonderful, wonderful traditional martial artist that I spent a lot of time with, Chuck Norris, of course, Pat Johnson, it goes on and on. I was already in a mixed martial arts world by the mere fact that they were masters in various arts, if that makes sense. Oh, and completely. Uh, Danny and Asanto, you know, the list goes on and on. So, um, you know, the, it's it's just been amazing. And, and this is why I encourage people, step out here. It's very easy to sort of become comfortable in your own art. People don't, you know, ever saying, heaven forbid you unfold your arms and get found out for what you don't know. <laughs> People get very insecure about being deemed a master, which, by the way, is, is, is also a huge title, but they don't want to be found out for not being adequate in all things martial arts, which is the biggest mistake any student can ever make. I mean, I get, I've been recently working with an Alex Kostic who's from Croatia, Serbia, he's a, a Sistema, but he's his own form of Sistema. And 
I've been doing stuff on the mat with Alex. You know, he was out here recently. A friend of mine, Matt Ball, brings him out to do seminars. And, oh, God, it just blew my mind because it was so contradictory to a lot of the stuff I already do. But I realized if I don't bother to step on and become a student, become a white belt and open myself up to new principles, new training methodologies, then it's a boring journey. You may as well stop. Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's yes. about you want to be challenged and you want maybe one little technique that I leave and I'm going, oh, my God, that's incredible. I never look at those things as doing instead of, it's as well as. You do it as well as your particular art or what you're already involved in. Add it to your your training methodology. I mean, look at Bruce Lee. He was a precursor for that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's under Ip Man, Wing Chun stylist and everything else, but smart enough to realize the value of wrestling or boxing. I mean, Danny and Asanto, I'm getting, I'm going off on tangents uh-huh. here, excuse me, but I mean, I, I had a great lunch with Danny and Asanto recently. He said Bruce was working on single and double leg takedowns in the late 60s. I mean, you've got to think back, that was unheard of for a karate guy or a stand up to even consider what a wrestler's sort of repertoire was. And yes, it would have been very fundamental, but I thought, wow, that says a huge amount about his mindset, about opening his horizons and understanding that one art by itself is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. And, you know, and adding these different sort of – look at his footwork, you know, with Bruce. Wing Chun styles didn't move like that. He studied yeah. Western boxing, the boxer's footwork, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. So, you know, a lot to be learnt, in, you know, with what's out there now in, in that master world. But I just keep imploring people, just have the gut, step out of your comfort zone, put a white belt on if, it, if it's necessary and step on the mat. And my, my final point to that as a demonstration of character is – you know, I, when I started training with the Machados in uh, jiu-jitsu, Chuck had had an intro to the Gracies. Yep. And I said, Chuck, you need to start training with these guys. They're amazing. I was training out in a garage in Redondo Beach, you know, with three of the brothers. Two of them went out in the States yet. This was would have been, I don't know, 1990 maybe. Wow. Could be even a little earlier. And I said, Chuck, you need to see these guys. So he said, oh, bring them out to the house, you know, and we'll do a private. I think it was Carlos Higgin and uh, at least Carlos and Higgin Machado. Roger might have been there. Anyway, that started the whole relationship Chuck had with the Machados, setting mm-hmm. them up in school, et cetera, et cetera. But I always say to people, the very first club that was set up in the Valley in uh, Encino for the Machados, who's the first person was on the mat with a white belt on was Chuck Norris. Wow. Now, he could have gone, oh, well, I'm Chuck. I'm supposed to be a master and know everything. Didn't even occur to him. He was just so excited at the opportunity. And Chuck was already a black belt in judo, by the way. But he still, no ego, with a white belt on the mat, as a student, just wanting to learn something about this new art that he, by the way, had come across after a, like a vacation to uh, Brazil. Wow. Happened in a club with Helio, Orion Gracie, even Hoist Gracie was there, and Hicks on Gracie, and that was Chuck's introduction to BJJ. He brought a tape back to America with some of Hicks on Gracie's very early Valley Tudo or No Rules matches, mm-hmm. showed it to me. That's what piqued our whole interest with that. Anyway, yeah, so he brought a tape back, brought he brought some of the Gracies out to his UFAF convention, 
as I just explained, I sort of introduced him to the Machados uh, and started training with them and on and on again. But my point being, if someone like Chuck Norris can sort of just get rid of that, that ego and that validation by being called a master and put a white belt on and get on the mat, then what better example is there than that? Yeah, true definition of humbleness in martial arts right there. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, how smart is it to realize, boy, if I add this to what I'm already doing, how much better am I going to be? So a lot of wisdom. And he, I remember quite a few episodes he featured uh, jiu-jitsu in, in Walker, Texas Range. I, I think, weren't the Machados actually in an episode or two, I believe? Yeah, they were in episodes, yeah. and uh, Carlos Machado ended up moving to Texas as a result of Chuck doing Walker, Texas Ranger. Nice. That's, uh, Carlos has got a huge, um, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu affiliation set up there in Austin, and um, that was a result of Chuck. So Chuck kept on, brought them year after year to the UF, UFAF convention. So, yes, it's it's set up a, a really long friendship. Nice. How would you describe Zendokai for someone who, you know, didn't know anything about it? Uh, you know, our loose translation, which is not literal, you mm -hmm. know, if you translate Japanese, but our loose translation of Zendikai was the best of everything in progression. Nice. We came that phrase in the very beginning in 70, and the reason being that we were based in Goju, traditional Okinawan karate style, you know, albeit a Japanese version of under, you know, Gogen Yamaguchi. But because of most of the membership when Bob started off due to his running a security camp, most of the students were bouncers, you know, they were they were tough guys. So Bob realized that you needed to bring in the reality-based aspect. In other words, bring in some judo, some boxing. In other words, whatever worked, we needed to incorporate into our style, take the blinkers off and not just be a traditional karate style. So in essence, in 1970, as you know, the UFC didn't start till what, you know, early 90s or whatever it was. So we were already, in essence, a mixed martial arts club. And um, so that's really what epitomized Zendokai was just looking out there at the various arts, as I said, Western boxing. I mean, back then, a karate guy would never consider a wrestler as a martial artist yep. until you get to the UFC and suddenly wrestlers are taking these stand-up martial artists off their feet in a nanosecond with a double leg or single leg takedowns and pinning them on the ground. And suddenly people go, oh, shit, you know, maybe <laughs> there's something to wrestling Iraq or Roman and the rest is history, of course. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, so that, that's what Zendikai is to me. It was just about encompassing everything. Now the style, it's, it's under BJMA, Bob Jones Martial Arts. And uh, it's, we've got Krav Maga, Screamer, you know, we've got kickboxing, Muay Thai, wow. Karate. So it, it's really... Well, it's really an example of, of what most clubs out there are now. I mean, there's right. not a lot of clubs that don't cross-train anymore, at least provide some form of grappling for stand-up fighters and vice versa. So I think we were a precursor. We were ahead of our day back in the day. Definitely. Any Zendokai schools in the U.S.? No, there oh. aren't. Okay. No, it's Australia and New Zealand predominantly. There are some affiliates in Europe. It just never really occurred to sort of spread and branch our wings outside of Australia. It was a handful, you know, that we, at one stage we, we had thousands of students here in Australia wow. and still, still the clubs are going strong. And uh, again, just taking the blinkers off and trying to encompass whatever is effective and uh, a product of today's martial arts environment. Nice. 
So what is some advice you would give someone who's thinking of getting involved in martial arts for the first time in their life? They know nothing about it and they just want to know one or two tips. Like what should I look for in a school? What should I look for an instructor? And maybe what's something I should avoid? I think the first thing is to ask yourself why you want to learn martial arts. Because some people legitimately want to learn, they want to be a jiu-jitsu champion, for instance, or a karate champion. That's a very different direction, I believe, than if somebody who really wants to learn real-life street defense, you know, how Mm -hmm. to take care of themselves. There's also the aspect of the art, which is a bit like yoga is do you also just want to do it for particular physical fitness, for agility, for flexibility, you know, at the same time learning an art that not necessarily has a lot to do with can I beat two dudes in the street? So there's there's different reasons people have. Like you'll get a lot of families doing martial arts, taekwondo maybe, you'll get mum and dad and the kids. It becomes a, a family thing that they can be involved in an activity together yep. with the kids. I think that doesn't necessarily uh, have a lot to do with the real world, ugly world of, of street defense. If you can decide what that is, I think that will determine a lot of what sort of art you do. And the next thing is to find out what's in your area and actually just go and have a look. Go and sit and watch a class. Watch how the instructor interacts with his students. How caring is he? How attentive is he to detail, et cetera, et cetera? Because there's a lot of clubs that you'll go in and almost get your head ripped off, you know, from <laughs> the get There's survival matches almost every day, and there's a lot that actually understand it's about longevity and it's about looking after each other. And I think your your gut instinct will tell you a lot when you bother to not just straight away do a class, but sit and watch a class and really take it in and just decide whether you think that suits your particular personality and or what you see being taught. Is that in line with your aims as to why you want to learn a particular martial art, you know, because some of it's confronting. If you go to a jiu-jitsu school, there's no theory in jiu-jitsu. You're either getting, when you roll, you learn drills and techniques, but when you roll, you're either getting tapped out or you're tapping somebody out. There's no in-between. With karate, there's a certain amount of theory still. You know, there's, if you're not wearing protective equipment, there's non-contact, so there's that aspect. Look at Aikido. You know, with Aikido, you're doing a lot of throws, rolls, and everything else. I believe there's more art than combat involved, at least in the early stages of jiu-jitsu. Or you go to boxing, you're definitely going to get hit, and you're definitely going to be hitting people because you're putting gloves on. You've got to ask, well, am I okay with that? And finally, if you go to a proper mixed-up martial arts school, of course, again, you're going to be put on the line where it's, it's again, there's a certain amount of theory gone because if you don't get involved in the full contact aspect of it, then you're not really doing mixed martial arts in the sense of what you see in the UFC and uh, aspects right. like that. But again, different arts for different people. It's not for everybody. You know, I, I refuse to get involved in survival matches anymore at my stage of life because I want to still be doing this in my 90s. Should it be I live that long? You know what I mean? And that, right. that means that I'd be very careful with injuries and everything else, you know, associated with whatever art I'm doing. Nice. So now you, you were around back in 93 when the, when the UFC kind of exploded. What, what were your initial thoughts when you saw that? You know what, I, I, I remember it giving me a lot of apprehension because, you know, for those who weren't around then, when the UFC started, there were no weight divisions and there were 
very few rules. I mean, of course, it's consensual, meaning you know who you're going to fight. There's a referee and there's judges, so there's rules. You know, you yep. couldn't attack the eyes and the groin. But back in when it started, you could headbutt. You could use the point of the elbow. There were a lot of really dangerous techniques. And I used to see, you know, people get stuck on the back in what we in grappling know as the mount position and mm-hmm. be headbutting or pounding people. And I thought, oh, God, it's only a matter of time before somebody gets killed doing this. I think what I realized later on is that a lot of them really didn't have the expertise. They Like the grapplers who would get people down on their backs and sit on them or get in the mount or whatever, thankfully didn't really know how to punch really well or strike really well. Forget about it today. I mean, now they're good at everything. But going back then... You know, someone like a Hoist Race, he wasn't a puncher or a kicker. He just knew what he did to get the fight to the ground, lock somebody up in his guard, and then, you know, finish him with a triangle choke or armbar or whatever, you know. But I did have a lot of fear that there's going to be a lot of damage. Thankfully, I was proved wrong. If, if you look at the history, there's really been very few major injuries in mixed martial arts in the UFC. Yeah. I mean, compared to, you think about, you know, I, I had an understanding of, of the UFC in that there was a couple of people that competed in, you know, world-class boxing and Kyokushin, you know, which is yep. brutal. No pads, they don't, they kick to the head, they don't punch to the head, but still. And one of one of my friends who, who got into mixed martial arts said, he said, think about it. If I am a good boxer and I do 10 rounds of boxing, Providing it lasts 10 rounds, I am getting punched in the head and body for 10 rounds, right? Think of the damage, you know? Whereas with mixed martial arts, because it's a a lot of grappling, you're not continuously striking. Yes, you're using smaller gloves and the chance of injury is greater because of the, you know, pounds per square inch aspect of getting hit with a smaller glove, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also so much chance for you to clinch, to hold, to slow the game down, you know, to be involved in a grappling match, which, yes, you can get injured in, in you know, a hyperextended armbar or tweak or whatever, but still you're not getting punched continuously in the head for 10 rounds. And I thought, oh, that's True. interesting. That actually makes a lot of sense. And the final thing I would say is that nowadays with the UFC, you don't get to be in there unless you're a professional Right. I mean, part-timers are never going to compete against these dudes. They're just so, so good. So you're looking at extremely conditioned and professional athletes that understand what they're getting into when they get in that ring. And finally, there's also always the opportunity to tap out when the going gets too rough or the referee to stop it, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it's proven me wrong in the regard that I think, listen, it's still violent. It's still vicious. You yeah. know, there's no question. It's, it's not for everybody. But I think with the, the rules surrounding it, I, I don't think it's so bad at all. And And it's certainly sorted out a lot of the martial arts as far as what would really work and what not. It took the theory out of everything because – Somebody could say, well, if I, you know, Aikido master would kill those guys or a Wing Chun master would, and I say, so where are they? Why aren't they in there competing against these? And you, surely it would put them, oh, well, ours is about the art. And you could go, okay, yeah, maybe. But you know what I'm getting at? It yeah. really sort of pointed out what was really effective and what was not. I can't help saying not to take it away from the value of an art that doesn't involve that sort of combative confrontations. I think 
I would ask, you know, if you didn't appreciate, say, karate and kata and the meditative aspects of what you do in a lot of the arts, I would also question, well, why do people do yoga? You know, why do you play chess? Why? There's a lot of activity you can do that, that are beneficial for the mind-body sort of connection, you know, that involve just you being in the moment, looking for perfection within yourself that doesn't necessarily have to always correlate with real-world violence. Wow, great answer. I love that. All right, so who are maybe two, three, four names that you would put? I mean, you've trained with and met so many. It doesn't have to be someone you've actually trained and met, but who would you put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Well, Tino Soberano, for nice. one, nice. being my, my first student. Tino's 82. I just spent time with him very recently. He's still active. He's teaching wow. seminars. His aura and his energy is contagious, so he's just a wonderful, wonderful role model for what the martial arts can do for you, both mind and body uh, sense. Nice. Um, the Machados, of course, Higa Machados, a very good, very close friend, still teaching. Jean-Jacques, the brothers, they're all still very, very active and very instrumental in putting BJJ on the map in America, along, of course, with the Gracies, Horion Gracie, Hicks and Gracie, etc. Yep. Fumio Demura is still very important to me in that yes. he used to teach out in Orange County and I would travel just about every day for a long time to train with Sensei Demura. And the reason he is important to me is because I realized later on that there was no reason he would have to spend hours on a Saturday after class helping me with Sai or bow or weapons. Do you know what I mean? He right. he just saw me as somebody passionate. That was enough for him, and I I never forgot that. I thought that's that's really what I, what you expect in a sensei. You know, to be passionate enough to just want to help another passionate martial artist get better at what yes. they do. So that was important. Um, there's a lot of a Bob Jones, of course, because if I hadn't, if Bob hadn't asked me to go and basically be a part of the um, creation of Zendikai, then once again, I wouldn't have met Chuck Norris. I wouldn't have got into bodyguard work. I wouldn't have got to America. So hats off to Bob for, for basically creating that opportunity. And hats off to me, by the way, for <laughs> being smart enough to take the opportunity and run with it. You Definitely. Know? You, know, I, I, you know, which gets me to another thing. I often say to people, I, have a, I try and advise some students. There's a lot of people that would say, Oh, well, you know, everything is thanks to Chuck Norris. Say in my case, if, if it wasn't for Chuck, I wouldn't be what I am. But I'd say, yes, absolutely. You know, I'll never, ever forget the opportunities Chuck gave me. But basically, it's like he put the football in front of me, as it were. It was up to me to kick it or not, yeah. you know, and I wouldn't have had longevity in the arts in movies, in doing 25 years of bodyguard work, if I didn't have what it takes. In other words, if I didn't also do the work necessary to give me longevity. So I say to people, take power from the fact. Always appreciate the introduction you got and the guidance you've got from your instructor. But you are also part of that journey. Take power from the fact that you're the one that also put in the hours of sweat, blood, sweat and tears to get to where you've got the given being that you're still involved, you know, yeah. in the arts and everything like that. So I love that. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot, you know, that have been great examples for me and yeah, yeah. that's a good list. So in your 60 plus years of martial arts, you talked a lot about the art side of it. So I'm curious, is there one philosophy you've learned over those 60 years that just rises to the top? It's the top of your list. It's super important to you. You keep teaching it to this day. Yes. Just to never forget that, you should always have the mindset of a student. 
Nice. You should always be a student and understand there is always some way to improve yourself, mind, body, whatever it is, you know. There's a book called The Critical Path that I often quote, written by a gentleman named Buckminster Fuller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very complex book. But one of the sort of lessons from there, and I'm paraphrasing, is that he talks about goal setting, why goals are never quite as fulfilling as you think they will be, meaning – I could be a karate. I grew up in Croydon. I start learning karate and the Croydon Karate Championships. And I say, oh, man, I'm going to compete in these Croydon Karate. If I could win that, that's it. I'd be happy. I'd have achieved, you know, something and that would be good. So I compete and I win whatever it is. Suddenly, oh, that was good. But the Melbourne Karate Championship, I need to do that. And then the Australia and then the world. In other words, the reason they're not as fulfilling, as he points out, is it's designed to keep you in motion because you never want to be – I believe, as a myself, I never want to be satisfied with where I'm at because he says if when something stops still, whether it's a plant, an animal, a human being, it's probably dead. So a goal is like that. You you never want to be satisfied. You, you reach a goal, and the fact that it's not as fulfilling propels you into setting a new goal. So you keep moving, you keep moving, you keep moving. And, and that's what I find most important for, for students is just, you know, there's a lot of so-called masters of punts around with the belts on colors and everything else. And But, you know, another gentleman, by the way, I should have mentioned who's – Almost number one on my list is Benny the Jet Urquidez. Yes. What a great role model. He's a doer. You know, he doesn't talk. He doesn't just theorize. He's on the mat and then he doesn't. He he really pushes his students to be doers. You know, like he'll get students sometimes saying, oh, well, I I do this, I do that. So don't tell me, surprise me. In other words, let's get in the ring and move around and see what you do. And and that that's important. You know what I'm, I'm getting at? I, it's about goals. It's about never stop getting out there and being a student, being on the mat. Just chuck away your ego. Don't have to be Master Joe or Master Bob every day of the year. It is okay to be exposed for still having something to learn. And that's what I would encourage people to do. And if you can do that, every day of your life can be exciting because every day you wake up, you have a chance to learn something new should you have that desire. And think about how exciting is that. Most people don't have that. They're doing jobs they hate. They're bored, stupid. They're waiting to start to live. When they retire, when they've got this, when they've got that, whereas as a muscler, I can be excited about tomorrow. I'm going to train with a couple of friends and everything, and we're going to explore some other aspects of art. So it's a you know passion, and that's my final bit of advice, and which is really along those lines is try and find something that you're passionate about, something that makes you want to get up every day. Don't just sort of go through the motions and be involved in work and activities that you basically hate, that don't really interest you, and you're looking at it as a means to an end of once I acquire this house, this car, this whatever, or I get validated. Just find something you're passionate about, and the universe, as Buckminster Fuller says, will often take care of you. If you find your passion, not for reasons of income, of fame, of fortune, everything else, the universe will just take care of you, sometimes in the nick of time. But, And I think that's what my life has been. As I said, I just wanted to be a good martial artist. And as a result of that through line, bodyguard film work, everything else has come as a result of that passion. So I think I'm a, 
I'm a living example of what Buckminster Fuller was on about. Definitely. Nice. All right. I got a few fun questions to wrap it up. Do you have okay. a favorite martial arts book? Zen and Japanese culture. Without question. I got it when I was a teenager. It was written by D.T. Suzuki. And it's pretty much about, obviously, in Zen, but it was about the mind of the samurai, you know, aspects of the swordsman and, and where his mind was at with an emphasis, of course, of Buddhism and, and Zen. And it's been my Bible ever since. I still read it. You know, it's okay. a phenomenal book for, for anybody to read. You You will gain so much insight, you know to life in general, not just as it pertains to martial arts. I'll have to add that to my list. Nice. All right. And this one, maybe you don't have an answer for about half and half with my guests. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Were you ever a gamer? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Easy. Only because I think I've got an addictive personality. And I think if I thought I got into any sort of that gaming, then there goes my life. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. All right, these these next few questions, you can't pick a project that you were involved in, so it might be hard because you've done a lot. Do you have a favorite martial arts TV show? Gee, <laughs> martial arts, do you mean it's on now? No, it, it, it can be, you know, some people pick, like, I've had people pick Green Hornet and Kung Fu. I've had people pick Cobra Kai and anything in between. So. Yeah, no, maybe, maybe maybe Kung Fu, the original series, was okay. was fascinating for me as a younger person, you know, because, again, it was about the spiritual and the art and not just the combative aspects of martial arts. And, you know, I did – I ended up doing an episode of Kung Fu, the legend continues with David Carradine. I remember Carradine. that. I love that, yes. And, I, and he was he was delightful. He was very, very professional, albeit he sometimes wouldn't come for two days because he'd go on a drinking binge, but that's what <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard that too. <laughs> it, it was just fun to be involved in such a you know iconic sort of uh, martial arts series. That's cool. Sorry, I just want oh. – you know what? My wife just reminded me of really – was instrumental in a lot of my passion was the samurai do you remember it was a, oh you might you're too young it was a black <laughs> and white ninja series that we had in australia back in the 60s believe it or not samurai. it was called the samurai with shintaro was the samurai master and and um he had his ninja sort of it's a bit like, you know, the Lone Ranger, you know, and Tonto, you know, where you had the samurai, you know, Shintaro and and his ninja sort of uh, compatriots. And it was phenomenal choreography when it came to sword stuff, you know, set in Japan, obviously. Mm-hmm. That was one of my earliest introductions wow. to martial arts on screen. And again, black and white, but incredible, incredible series and so much a part of what sort of drove my passion for the arts. Nice. Yeah, I'm actually just reading about it. I'll have to see if I can find that online. That's kind of cool. Got to have a look. You will be blown away with the choreography of some of the, the sword work and everything in that series. It's just uh, fantastic. Okay. You know? nice. Yes. All right. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Probably I would, there was a couple, but they would have to be Kurosawa's films, ah, yes. you know, for me, Yojimbo, nice. Sanjuro. I mean, you know, and the stories of, uh, of you know, Kurosawa is just incredible with his, the way he depicted action, you know, and storytelling in those, those earlier movies. And mm-hmm. I love them. You know, the ones with Zatoichi were also great, you know, the blind swordsman. Yep. I used to love those. But yeah, there was a couple. So if, if all of them, probably Sun Judo, 
you know, Miyamoto Musashi was was depicted in some of these films, and I was intrigued with his journey. You know, as this this legendary samurai warrior. You know, I always remember this fight in one of them that he supposedly had with this Kojiro Sasaki, who was apparently a master of this long sword that he called. Uh, what he called the clothesline, and he had this cut really? called the swallow cut, where supposedly he could cut a swallow out of the air. Not a good thought, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> and it was all about this legendary battle they had on this island, you know, where this is a Kojiro wanted to just always test himself against the best, so he ended up having a duel with Miyamoto Musashi in this island. And anyway, they end up having this duel. Musashi arrives late. He ended up whittling a, a wooden sword out of an out of one of the oars, you know, of the rowboat going over this island. Because for anyone who don't know, if you, if you ever get the Book of Five Rings that a lot of businesses even use, it was all on strategy and warfare and everything else. But mm-hmm. point being, what, what I love most is they eventually had this duel on the island, uh, Kojiro, gets beaten, you know, Miyamoto Musashi cuts him down. And I still remember this samurai lying on his back. He's dead. And to me, whether it was my interpretation, he had this this kind of a slight smile on his face. And I thought, ah, and to me that represented the fact that he is a martial artist and as a samurai, all he wanted to do in life was to test his art against the very best. And he got to do that. And even though he lost, he had still fulfilled his ambition of being up against the very best in someone like Miyamoto Masashi. And I, I don't know, it just really struck a chord. That's with cool. Me. I like that. All right. How about now this one? It doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, just overall, any movie, a favorite movie fight scene. Ooh, let me think. Because there's so many of you. <laughs> yeah. But man, the favorite movie fight scene. I've had people say anything from Star Wars to Marvel to Bruce Lee, anything in between. So, and anything goes. Yeah, look, um, God, I'm, I can't. I'm not sure. Nothing comes to mind straight up. I mean, obviously, all the, uh, you know, Enter the Dragon, all those had incredible influence. You know, are they then my favorite? Not necessarily. I, you know what? I, I couldn't even give you one. Okay, I'd right? be something up. No um, because there's, you know, some of the some of the fights that I've seen with the incredible Sama Hong that I did a number ah. of movies with will yes. blow anything else away. His his creativity and choreography, his ability to execute them as somebody built the way he is, mm-hmm. still blows me away. Yes. You know, Sama Sama's amazing. So some of those movies, yeah, that Sama was involved in, of course. Jackie Chan. See what I mean? There's too many, you know, yeah. I'd be like <laughs> touching its straws to try and just pick out one. And I Did you ever work on martial law with Samo? No, I didn't. Okay. That's a show that I think was ahead of its time. I, I, it, I think it should have lasted much longer than it did. <laughs> so yeah, it did. And I, you know, I met with Samo a few times when he was doing that. He was, it was interesting. He was very disappointed in that, you know, Samo was used to Hong Kong and being the boss. Yeah. You know, some of, you know, fight scenes I did with Samo, uh, like the first fight scene took three and a half or two and a half weeks to shoot. You wow. know, what he realized coming to America and doing a, you know, a, a series under union rules is that pretty much most of the fights he had to be doubled because you have second unit and first unit and first unit would take care of all the dialogue and 
you know, second unit would do a lot of the action, which drove him mad because that was his thing, you know. That's what he did best. So he, he was a bit disappointed. He also was disappointed in that they didn't quite respect the knowledge base he had and that he was bringing to the series. Right. It was more or less, look, Sammy, you just worry about the the fights, you know what I mean? Because he would have a lot of input as far as character and, and all aspects of filmmaking, which he was already a master at, and that wasn't appreciated. So that upset him a little bit. But that being aside, great series, but I think that probably had something to do with it not lasting yeah. as long as it would have. Okay. Uh, final, final question. Is there anyone that you haven't had a chance to work with yet that you'd love to? Uh, in film, you mean? Yes, correct. Yeah, I... Uh, Probably Keanu Reeves. You know, oh. I've been that close. I really, you know, you know why? Because first of all, I just, from what I understand from so many people who've trained him and know him doing the John Wick movie and everything mm-hmm. else, you meet a nicer human being. He is apparently so giving, so compassionate, you know, with his time and everything else, so committed because, and I'm not giving anything away, but Keanu is basically, you know, he's generally speaking can be a little overweight, loves to smoke pot and everything else. But once he commits, it's a hundred percent of you. I mean, you look at some of these, these, um, clips of him on YouTube when he's on the gun range, you know, doing mag changes and everything else. It's as good as anyone you will see. And I was told, he just put the time in. He spent time, you know, learning jujitsu, really getting into the whole fight aspect of the John Wick movies. So I respect him for a whole lot of reasons, as I said, for being a, a really compassionate human being. He does incredible amounts for charity at the same time as being a great actor and just doing such a wonderful job in action movies that we as martial artists like to uh, look at. So, nice. yes, I would just like to be to spend a bit of time with somebody like that on screen. I think it'd be incredibly rewarding thing to do. I'd love to see that. Before I let you go, any new projects coming up you want to talk about? Any anything coming up you want to plug? Yeah, well, there's always stuff coming up, whether it all happens or not. Okay. <laughs> always worth that. You know, I've been around long enough. I've got about three or four projects that are on the go. We always used to say, you say yes to everything and, you, you know, you throw it all against the wall. And if one of them sticks to the wall, you're doing well. But, you know, as, as I mentioned, I just finished six months, seven months on the latest Mad Max franchise, which is going to be incredible. Nice. The most expensive movie ever shot here in Australia. And wow. uh, you've got Anya Taylor-Joy, you know, as the lead playing the younger Charlize Theron characters, Furiosa. Chris Hemsworth is the main bad guy who's just going to be incredible. What a specimen he is. So that's exciting. But I was I was hired as fight coordinator on that one, and okay. I reprised my role that I had as an imperator in the Fury Road film, but much less in this one, more a bookend than anything else, but mm-hmm. still excited to be a part of it. There's another one called Scar Tissue that we're in pre-production on that we hopefully will get to next year, early next year. And it's almost like an unforgiven with uh, Clint Eastwood, but set in an Australian outback town. And I'm really, it's probably the best role I've been offered in my whole career because it's age appropriate, you know, and I can draw on a lot of life experiences. So I'm just excited to give that a real crack. Um, There's another one, another martial arts movie that maybe will go in March. Uh, It's a kid's martial arts movie that I've been asked to play this grandmaster in, and that's exciting. 
So uh, hopefully it's going to be a busy year again. And, and hopefully why I'm excited is there are actually roles I want to do. I, I have a thing now where I say I'm, I'm really only going to do things that I want to do as opposed to what I think I have to do. Nice. And there's a big difference, you know, get a bit of a balance in life and just really enjoy the finite amount of time I have left which sounds morbid, but I'm 70, you know, 73, you know, even if I've said to people, even if I've lived to be a hundred and I live perfect health and everything else, that's still way less than a third of the two thirds I've already lived. So one would think I would want to be very careful how I spend those years. That's a good, good point. Well, Richard, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been so much fun. It's, it's, it's been a dream come true chatting with you. I've been a fan of yours for so long, and, and I'm so glad we were able to you know, figure out the 16-hour time difference and make this work. And it, mm. I, You're an amazing storyteller. I just, I, I've loved hearing your story, and, and I can't wait to see what else you have coming up. So Thank you, and, and apologies to the listeners if I'm going on a bit. I'm, I'm, you can tell I'm not a bad talker. <laughs> as Judy would say, yeah, you're great when the cameras are rolling. She said, I get the wreckage at home where I'll flop on the couch. But <laughs> <laughs> nice. well, the, the list, like yeah. I said, the listeners tune in to hear hear my guests, not me. So I, I, I love guests who like to talk. So that's really, really good. <laughs> I, I, I truly appreciate that. Thank you for that, right? Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.